Welcome to the Counter Vultures Podcast. This is Peter Zalewski. This is our real estate player's profile. It's a one-on-one conversation I have with someone who has an interesting story to tell, and it pertains to South Florida real estate. For this particular week, and by the way, this is episode number 54, um, I have a discussion with a gentleman I met back in 2009. His name is Robin Farzad. At the time, he was a senior writer with uh, Bloomberg Business Week. Um, did a profile on what was going on in the Miami um, condo market, especially the big downturn during the Great Recession, and what we were doing sort of to, on the buy side, to sort of take advantage of the opportunity that was in front of us. We stayed in contact uh, over the years. Uh, Robin right now has a, he hosts a program on uh, uh, public radio called Full Disclosure. And also, too, he wrote a book uh, called Hotel Scarface. It's a nonfiction book where he documents uh, the cocaine trade. Uh, in Miami, how it really sort of uh, took hold in the 1980s and how it sort of has evolved and morphed into a whole variety of different um, aspects and angles, including real estate, including real estate. So I reached out to Robin. I said, hey, can you come up on the podcast? Um, You know, I want to discuss uh, the impact of uh, dirty money, cocaine money, all of that type of stuff on South Florida real estate. I also wanted to sort of discuss how it all began. Robin spent a number of years, somewhere in the vicinity of probably 15 years or so, putting together this book, uh, as mentioned, nonfiction. It names names and it goes through some of the details and it sort of brings together all the loose ends. Uh, if you listen to the entire podcast, you're going to go ahead and hear that Robin estimates somewhere between one-third and 40% of the Miami economy, at least back in the 1980s, uh, was all attributed to uh Drug money, drug money, which was primarily cocaine coming in out of Colombia and other parts of South America. So um, that's what we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss his book. We're going to discuss his background. Very interesting individual, Harvard, Princeton educated, um, great guy, uh, sarcastic sense of humor. Um, I think you're probably going to enjoy this podcast. So if you're not yet a subscriber to Counter Vultures podcast, uh, I'd encourage you to do so wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to leave us a rating, if you like what we're what you're hearing and what we're doing, go ahead and leave us a rating and uh, leave us a comment. Um, the more comments we get, the better ratings we get. Ultimately, it helps us to sort of uh, fulfill our mission statement, which is try to bring straight talk to the South Florida real estate market, which tends to be overhyped, um, as many of you probably realize. And then finally, if you have any comments, um, and we discuss the comments uh, uh, during our Reporters Roundtable, which is every Wednesday, uh, please send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. So fasten that seatbelt, lean back, and get ready to learn about cocaine, money laundering, and Miami real estate. Are you a primary user or real estate investor who's in the market for a discounted South Florida condo? Are you searching in the markets of Greater Downtown Miami, Miami Beach north to Sunny Isles Beach, Hollywood north of Fort Lauderdale, or anywhere else east of I-95 in the Tri-County, South Florida region? If so, the buyer brokers at Condo Vultures Realty are here to assist you. Condo Vultures Realty is a licensed Florida brokerage that was established in 2006 to assist educated buyers in identifying, negotiating, and purchasing units at a discounted price. To speak with a buyer broker at Condo Vultures Realty, Please call 305-865-5859 or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. This is Peter Zalewski, the host. I have the privilege of having on a, um, an author, a Harvard-educated, Princeton-educated uh, individual with his own radio program, longtime financial journalist. You probably hear him on NPR. You probably see him on PBS. Uh, you know the name, and if you don't know the book called Hotel Scarface, you really need to. So his name is Robin Farzad. Robin, how's it going? Peter, how are you, sir? 
you're you were where, where are you at now? Where where are you living? I know you're in the DC area. I live in Virginia. I live in yeah, I live in Virginia. I grew up in Miami. My heart is split between, you know, I went up I went to school up north and I uh, worked in New York for a long time, but uh, as clearly as the book is a uh, testament to my big part of my heart and soul is, is right down there in the three oh five. Nice, nice, nice. Um, so let's, what, um, let me sort of lay out the rules of engagement. So you have an idea in the audience because, um, chances are we got some new listeners who are going to listen to this because they want to hear uh, what you have to say. They want to hear about Hotel Scarface. So let me just tell you, our only rule of engagement is we look for straight talk and salty language is permitted. So is that cool with you? I know that's probably going to work. Yeah, kosher salt, whatever you want, pour it on. <laughs> what I'd like to do is I want to, I want to do three 20 minute segments. First 20 minutes is about you. Second 20 minutes will be about the uh, primarily about the book and where in in how it all came together, and then the third 20 minutes I want to talk about the future and whether or not cocaine and illicit money is still down here in the uh, Miami economy. That hit me. All right, all right. So Robin, I'm I'm here on LinkedIn and I, I'm looking, and your your resume just blows me away. Let Let's start off with your education. Let's talk about, Let's talk about some of the things you highlight on LinkedIn. So you you, you got a master's from Harvard. You got a uh, undergrad at Princeton. When you were at Princeton, one of the activities and societies you belonged to was the Friends of General Tso's Chicken. Um, uh, I, I, how critical was that to your overall career and success? Yeah, that was essential. Uh, you know, when I first tried General Tso's Chicken uh, freshman year, that just changed my life. And eating that stuff at two, three in the morning, I mean. That's just a that's just a glide path to type two diabetes. But it, it was great. It cleared my sinuses. I did uh, great work, and uh, I really wanted to put that down on my yearbook description upon graduation. You know, I I, I felt I felt like General Soul was my General Soul was like my you know uh, my spirit animal. I I really I really needed him, and he helped me out through college. And uh, uh, you know, in my old infirm age, I can only eat it every now and then now. <laughs> So then you, then you go to Harvard, you get an MBA from Harvard, and uh, one of the societies you're involved with was the Friends of R.F. O'Sullivan's Pub. Yes, R.F. O'Sullivan, uh, R.F. O'Sullivan's is on the uh, Cambridge, uh, what is it, what is the town bordering Cambridge, I forget. Um, it's where the Winter Hill Gang and Whitey Bulger were based. But there's this great pub with incredible burgers and, you know, buffalo strips. And I didn't, I didn't learn much in business school, but I really enjoyed that pub, so I wanted to give it a shout out on LinkedIn. Well done, well done. And then you were a senior writer over at Bloomberg uh, Business Week, uh, covering Wall Street, emerging markets, all types of other things. Uh, did you always want to be a business writer, or did you sort of go into it because uh, you know there are openings and no, no other journalist wanted to do it? And you figured that'd be a great way to fast track. Yeah, there was. Uh, uh, believe it or not, uh, at the turn of the century, and I love saying that in interviews because <laughs> it's, it's, you know it's already at the turn of the century there was this this rare boom in business journalism. and there was all this. In the dot-com bubble, tech and financial advertising and magazines like Fortune and Smart Money and Forbes were so thick, the industry standard, Business 2.0. And I was also, uh, you know, I, I, I was really into someone I was dating who was still in college, and I wanted an excuse to move up to New York and everything. And these are the places that were hiring. Of course, she uh, broke up with me and ripped out my soul uh, before I started here nor there. But by then, I had to concentrate on, on becoming a great business journalist, and I immersed myself in it as the dot-com boom turned into bust. Wow, wow. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, have you ever heard of the um, the singer-songwriter um, Frank Turner out of the U.K.? No. 
Okay, so so Frank Turner, here's your homework assignment. He's got a song where he wrote it um, about uh, a girl who broke up with him, and then he wrote about all these other girls that broke up with him, and he actually goes on to say later on, once, this, once the, um, uh, the song became very popular over in the U.K., that many of the women were calling him up and wondering how come they weren't included in the song. <laughs> wow. No, 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 this was... No, this was a turn-of-the-century devastation, but I guess it's good because it got me up to New York, and I went for all yeah. the wrong reasons, but stayed for the right reason and, and turned myself into a serious business journalist, and and the rest is uh, my pitiful history, I guess. So so you you, you are on and um, have been on everything from uh, NPR, PBS, C-SPAN, CNBC, CNN. I'm sitting there, I'll pull up something, and all of a sudden I'm either hearing you or I'm seeing you. How many different uh, types of uh, media uh, uh, and, uh, outlets are you on uh, regularly, and then where else have you been? I, I used to do a lot more TV. Now it's mostly NPR. Uh, I do the show here and now. Uh, every mm-hmm. week I have my show on uh, NPR's podcast network. It's called Full Disclosure. If you want to check out some of my stuff, fulldradio.com on Apple Podcasts. If you get it on Spotify. Yep. We've, we've had Hotel Scarface guests. We just had the CEO of Purell. We've had the White House correspondent from NBC News. Uh, we've had various true crime writers, TJ English, Michael Mann from Miami Vice. Uh, it's really mm-hmm. my, my passion thing. Maybe someday I'll figure out how to make a living off of it uh, or launder <laughs> money down in, down in uh, Bay Harbor or something. I don't know. Right, right, right. I don't know if you saw, but one of the one of the most esteemed money laundering experts at the University of Miami just got taken down by the I Fed. For, uh, yep. Well, one of the one of the characters in the book, and we'll get to it, was the top accounting student at the University of Miami in the late seventies, and he was so adept at it that the Federal Reserve Bank of Miami hired him, and then the uh, Medellin cocaine cartel immediately co-opted him. I mean, you can't be satisfied making five and a half dollars an hour when these guys will pay you tens of thousands of dollars to launder, uh, you know, a, a whole banana boat full of cocaine. Wow, wow, wow. Which leads us to um, you writing the book. Now, um, wh- when did the book come out and how long did you work on it before it ultimately came out? Uh, I, you know, this book came out three years ago in October of 2017, and I worked on it on and off since, you know, let's say 1998. Uh, when I graduated from college, I found a job down in Miami, uh, just gave me an excuse to be down there. Um, I don't want to give away part of the book, but you'll realize that when I left uh, to go up to college, that's when I encountered this property. And, mm-hmm. you know, it haunted me. And I picked it up and I put it down and I picked it up and I put it down. And you go through enough records and you do enough searches and you realize that so many things have been spoke back to this address down on South Bayshore Drive in Coconut Grove and all these stories, and that it was just stranger, stranger than fiction, and I had to have that story. I'm just so proud of, of, of you know, being able to write the book that I wanted to write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and for anybody who's unaware of Hotel Scarface, let, let, let me just read you a little, uh, let, let me read you the intro, just to kind of summarize it. Um, uh, the wild true story of the mutiny, the hotel and club that embodied the decadence of Miami's cocaine cowboy Haiti and the inspiration for the blockbuster film Scarface in the 70s, coke hit Miami with a full force of hurricane and no place attracted dealers and dopers like Coconut Grove's mutiny at Sailboat Bay. Hollywood royalty, rock stars, models flocked up the hotel's club to order bottle after bottle of, the, of Dom and snort lines along, uh, alongside narcos, hitmen and gun runners, all while marathon orgies burned upstairs in the elaborate fantasy suites. So that's just a taste of what this book is all about. 
Oh, yeah. Um, and when you realize that that happened there and that many other things, by the way, I, I had to deliver, what was it, a 320-page book. It had to be, I think it weighed a kilo. I'm not sure, <laughs> half a kilo. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, there's so much that was left on the cutting room floor. There's so many stories. I had to, you know, deliver it at some point. And um, I, just, I just love being in touch with people, even after the fact that, uh, you know, family members of characters in the story who have since passed, who who get in touch and say, you really just opened my eyes or you brought back an era. It's just so gratifying to me. You know, I didn't yeah. make much money on this book. You're not going to, on a, on a first time, on a first time book that doesn't become a, a, you know, an immediate New York Times bestseller and everything. It's really truly a labor of love considering all the time that I spent on it. But the, the real compensation, and I, I'm not, I'm not BSing you, is when just random people get in touch with me on Twitter or Facebook Messenger and, and say, mm-hmm. look, this, this really had an impact. You know, that to me is the, that's, that's the long bond. That's the long currency. That's, that, you know, after the publicist from the publisher and everything stopped getting in touch after the TV appearances and after the film yeah. option lapsed and everything, that's the longevity of, of a project that I just devoted such a long time to. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Robert, we're, we're coming up on the end of our first segment, but I want to ask you a couple more questions, just two or three more questions before we uh, take a commercial break, and then we're going to go ahead and we're going to really start to uh, dive into the, you know, the, the, the What, the what commercial and, break? What, do your, do your cousins listen to this? Who the heck listens to this show? For all I can, no. I just catch enough. Come on. Listen, listen, listen. You'd be surprised who listens to this show. I have public what, relations like, from, What, Maria uh, Cervera or something or a handful of people? <laughs> Come on. What do you got going on? Nelson, I have PR. Hear it. <laughs> I have PR people out of London, New York, and elsewhere uh, pitching me. Uh, hey, what happened? What it, happened to that tiny? What happened to the tiny lady uh, in downtown Miami that owned all these like parking lots and everything? Edie Lacour. She must have made out like a bandit. Is she still down there? You know, I haven't heard anything about Edie um, for the longest uh, time. Last time I heard about her, she was suing somebody who tried to stiff her on a real estate commission. It's a very savvy commercial. Because let me just let me just get something out of my skin. When I worked in Miami <laughs> in '98 and '99 and 2000, I'd oftentimes yep. take the same boulevard downtown. I worked in the uh, you know the old uh, Southeast Financial Center, 200 South Biscayne Boulevard. It looks like a like a it used to be the tallest building, and I passed all sorts of dereliction on Biscayne Boulevard. And I was like, this is going to be worth something soon, man. It's not all going to be kind of run down. You're not going to be accosted by homeless people and prostitutes constantly. And lo and behold, you know, I leave to New York, and next thing I know, they're suddenly calling it Midtown and the Upper East Side. And, and uh, Iron, what is it? What is the other one? Iron something in Little Haiti? Oh, Iron, uh, oh I, I, Ironside Pizza or something? I, should, I I don't know Iron something Iron Iron Crossing or rail rail by the railroad crossing in Little Haiti. All this stuff is yep. just very expensive real estate right now. And I was like, why didn't I just buy it? Why didn't I just get out of the car and buy it or throw a bake sale? And and Miami well, has well, just gotten away away from me. So. Well, well, well. Listen, the way the market's going, chances are, you know how it is. Every ten years, you got a chance to come back in, swoop in, and take. Yeah, it up no. Pretty, even two thousand nine, when two thousand nine, when I saw you and the skyline was like bombed out, and you were taking people on boats. I mean, yeah. that was an opportunity. Talk about you know ebb and flow. And 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 in my mindset, we're talking about nineteen eighty, forty years ago, where the paradox is is that the city's burning down, there are race riots, and the Marielle. Uh, boat lift and and uh, Miami's on fire. It's a, it's a failed state. It's about to be on the cover of Time magazine as, as Paradise Lost. 
and people are paying all cash for condos, for horses, for cars, just anywhere you can hide money. So that's always that, that paradox and, and uh, that incongruity in Miami. Uh, so before I take this commercial break, and I'm telling you, I'm, I run commercials, I want to know how the hell did you get on a TED Talk? How did I what? How did you get on TED Talk? I saw you gave a presentation on TED Talk. That is like yeah, because high level type of stuff. Yeah, this was uh, this because I really had to tell the true psychological backstory of why I pursued this book, which was you know long and short of it is I came to Miami in the very late 70s as a traumatized immigrant. And there's always been a part of me that really needed to go back to the trauma of Miami in 1979 and 1980. And this always gnawed at me for as much as I went to school up north, for as much as I was a you know, big time journalist in New York, I, I really had to go and revisit and reopen 1980. And that's what my TED Talk was about. Which is fantastic. And, and this is where I want to take our commercial break. Anybody um, who wants to see the TED Talk, I'd encourage you to do so. Look up Robin Farzad, TED Talk, and it'll pop up right before your eyes. So we're going to take a commercial break. On the other side, we're going to get into the discussion about uh, Hotel Scarface and some of the details in cocaine in Miami, two things that go hand in hand. We'll be right back. Don't buy a South Florida condo, discounted or distressed, before taking a Condo Vultures correction tour. CondoVultures.com offers weekly bus and walking tours that focus on educating buyers on the how-tos of identifying discounted condos, analyzing the opportunities, and purchasing units. Every tour attendee receives a list of all condo projects in a particular market, a market assessment handout, and unmatched expert analysis. For more information on the condo correction tours, please visit condovultures.eventbrite.com or call 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Condo Vultures Podcast. This is Peter Zalewski. I'm having a conversation with Robin Farzad. You've probably seen him or heard him on a whole variety of media uh, outlets. He also spoke at the Miami Book Fair a couple of years back when his book came out, Hotel Scarface, the wild true story of the mutiny, the hotel and club that embodied the decadence of Miami's cocaine cowboy payday and an inspiration for the blockbuster film Scarface. Robin, how's it going? How's it going? I got I have to ask you a question. So you pretty much grew up in Miami, and um, we have the Miami Heat, and this is the NBA Finals, and here you are going for the hated Lakers with LeBron James, who basically fled from Miami, and Pat Riley. Uh, what say you? How, how could this be? I'm sorry. I was a Lakers fan ever since I came to the U.S. I grew up with Magic Johnson and James Worthy and Michael Thompson and all those characters, and that predated the Miami Heat. And so that's, you know, I, I have to, you have to forgive me. My loyalty's there, but I am a Dolphins and Hurricanes fan. Ah, uh, nice. And what do you think? What do you think of the Canes? Did they turn a the corner? Is this the, the return no, to glory? Well, they'll turn a corner when and if they can beat Clemson. That's the only test, if you ask me. Good point. And what do you, what do you make of the Dolphins and uh, uh, how Coach Flores is taking them? Is he going in the right direction or is this going to be another uh, I hope, attempt? I hope, I hope, I pray, but it, I, my son, doesn't believe me that my Miami Dolphins, I mean, I was spoiled in the 1980s growing up in Miami. There were contenders every year. He's like, get out of town, dad. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
So, Robin, it's um, uh, let's give the audience and our, our crowd from uh, the analytics is all over the world. They're coming from Tel Aviv, to Sydney, uh, Buenos Aires, Toronto, just everywhere. Um, Miami and cocaine. It actually has a pretty simple beginning, at least according to your book. And I loved your book. And anybody who hasn't read it, uh, I'd encourage you to go ahead and read it or do like I do. Get it on Audible and therefore somebody reads it to, um, to me. I think it was Robin reading it. Robin, didn't you read your own book? No, no, with some guy that sounded like a game show host. We tried to get Manny from Scarface, the movie, the the, uh, the actor Stephen Bauer, but he was too expensive. Ah, nice. So, 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 really, the the, the whole history, um, generally speaking, according to the book, my recollection. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, basically, uh, fishermen from Miami uh, would go over, and they were catching lobster and other things. The Bahamas put up a uh, some sort of uh, they they stopped the fishermen from coming, and now all of a sudden you had all these boat fishermen for hire, and the cocaine industry tapped into it, and that's what basically jump-started this flood of cocaine <clears throat> that came into Miami in the well, in the, well, uh, back, in the back 70s. Up. Okay. Back up first. Uh, Pre-revolutionary Cuba had the highest per capita cocaine consumption uh, in the hemisphere, pretty much. Okay. It was looked at as a, a very aristocratic thing to do at a time when this was the Las Vegas of the Caribbean, right? When anything goes, the mob owned the place. And so, you know, back then, people like you'd see it in a, in a governor's uh, mansion or, you know, he'd enjoy it with his mistress on an ivory little platter. And they even called it mm-hmm. postre, which is like, you know, pastry. Right or dulce yep. or candy, and so some of the, the the high class, very high class, you know, aristocratic land landed land owning people who came here in the 1950s and 60s, they uh, brought a taste for this kind of stuff. But it was very very rare. You did have some Colombians bringing it in in the early 70s, but it was a curiosity. But the 70s was mostly in Miami reefer madness, and a lot of the Cubans who were trained to uh, you know the Bay of Pigs crisis by the CIA to go back and take out Fidel Castro. They knew the coastline. They knew the thousands of miles of Florida coastline like the back of their hands. So it was child's play for them to come in and out of the Miami River and smuggle pot. But mm-hmm. something happened specifically when, um, you know, I think it was 1975 or 1976, it was the Bahamian government banned Cuban fishermen, Cuban-American, you know, South Florida fishermen from its waters. Uh, for lobster trapping. I mean, the spiny lobster, as you know, is a delicacy. I mean, uh, they were saying that this is our this is our territory and you shouldn't be able to plunder it and take the food back to Florida. So uh, these these fishermen who were already susceptible to becoming pot smugglers, they're like, no, why do I have to mess around and, and, and smell stinky and everything? I'm already moving pot. Suddenly cocaine is coming in. It's much more valuable per ounce, per load that you would bring in. Um, there were initially Peruvians bringing it in. Uh, then the Cubans just jumped all over it. And, of course, the Colombians are supplying it through Medellin. Uh, and you know all about Pablo Escobar. You know about the Ochoas. But they needed people who knew uh, maritime and, and air distribution. And so they needed the Cubans in South Florida. And that brings it, you know, to Miami and the mutiny and the various gangsters who hung out at the mutiny. Now, 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 initially, at least my, my recollection from going from the book, just to sort of set the macro scene for, for the listener, initially it was kind of rough and tumble business, but since then it's evolved into sort of uh, Miami's become a sort of a Casablanca where you don't have the shootouts like, like you used to back in the day. Now it's more refined. Would, would that be a general way to sort of uh, sum up the situation? 
Well, stop and think about it. If you could get this stuff, they say, on the hand for $500, $1,000, maybe $1,500, $2,000 in the jungles of Peru, process the pace through Colombia, bring a kilo in, and let's say by 1979, 1980, a pure kilo of quality cocaine would sell uh, un, an uncut, I mean, you know, a, a person would take a, a kilo, and these are not scrupulous people. By and large, they would cut it with, um, you know, with, uh, um, a, what is it, baby laxative or powdered milk, and they'd make two or three kilos out of one, depending on what they're, what, who they were marketing it to. So mm-hmm. for a $5,000 investment, to be able to turn it into a hundred, hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and then go down the supply chain, all the people bagging it up and selling it in in odd lots and everything, the dealers down, you're getting maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of value added. So yes, I mean you think about the precious in the Lord of the Rings, right? And Smeagol, mm-hmm. yep. and that's going to make people evil, and they're going to do evil things to fight for and to keep market share. And that's where you saw, um, you know starting pretty much with the Dadeland Mall shootout of July, of, of the summer of 1979, well into Miami becoming the world's murder capital in 1981. Wow, wow, wow. And in the Mutiny Hotel, which is uh, what you use for the, uh, effectively to tell the story, this was where everybody went to basically spend some of the proceeds or a lot of the proceeds that they were able to generate from this illicit business. Yeah, yeah. To give you an idea, there was one, the number five or number six guy in the Medellin cartel. He, you know, he had many loads coming in and he would go and party at this place. Um, and he turns to uh, one of the other party people and says, what is the craziest thing we could do uh, at this party? Mm-hmm. Money is not an object. And they're like, I don't know, fill the hot tub with doms. And they <laughs> ordered room service at 120 things. They all singed their genitals anyway, but they're like, no, I want to do that because that telegraphs to everybody that we are down to party. So, yeah, it's literally pouring $40,000 down the drain of a hot tub like that, like snapping your finger and tipping the, the room service kid 1000 or $2,000 and a bag of blow, right, in a, in a, yeah. crown, in a crown royal felt bag. Um, and that, that became, you know, the hot tub, the champagne hot tub of the mutiny and then various other things that would happen there. Like a Venezuelan oil trader would show up and he'd order a bottle of Lafitte, you know, Rothschild 19th century something. And they'd say, this is $30,000. And he's like, okay, you can put it on my tab. They're like, no, we don't do tabs here. We're all cash. It's like, all right. So the mutiny server brings him a phone and they have a phone jack at the table. He calls some bank on Brickell Avenue. And within 30 minutes, they bring in $35,000 in cash. And he pays for that bottle of wine. Money is no object. Um, and that was the place to kind of spend the uh, illegal tender. So so the the people spending the illegal tender, they came to this place. They partied here. But so did also the le- the legitimate individuals, including, wasn't it George Bush Sr., right, The uh, who would go on to become president? Yeah, George Bush Sr. was spotted there. He was more of a person to show up at the Mayfair by, you know, 1981 with the South Florida Drug Task Force. He may or may not have been spotted there in the 80s. A lot of people remember seeing Jeb Bush and Neil Bush or one of the other. I don't know what the SNL brother was, but uh, many more celebrities. And, you know, Ted Kennedy would be there. Hamilton Jordan of the Carter administration would be there. Uh, I have old newsletters from the club. The Cars, Fleetwood Mac, um, Jesus, I mean, Playboy Playmates. Uh, uh, just celebrities left and right. There's a rumor that Manuel Noriega would come in and partake. Uh, I got, you know, who got in touch with me after the fact is someone related to Steve Maddox, 
the shoe the shoe guy. And he used to party in mm-hmm. Coconut Grove, and he dated a cocktail waitress at the Mutiny, and he would party there. And next door was Bayshore Recording, uh, where you had the Eagles, um, you know, Joe Walsh, Eartha Kitt, various people coming in. I mean, let's let's not forget this is before South Beach was anything. And yeah. You needed a place to go to. There were some people that prefer the the Fontainebleau. And there were some people who would go to the mutiny and there was really nothing else going on in terms of our studio 54. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so uh, let, let, let's fast forward. Cause I don't want to give away too much about the book. Um, let's fast forward. What, what, what's going on with the mutiny uh, today? There, there, there's actually a, uh, you know, there's a mutiny bar that's operating, but, uh, but, but what, what, what happens if somebody listens to this, they, they read your book and then they come to Miami, what are they going to find when they show up at the mutiny today? They're going to see a, sterile condo hotel concept, very quiet. I mean, it's nothing. The the ghosts do linger there. You can definitely mm-hmm. feel them, but this place is completely uh, moved on. Um, yeah. It's just not, you know, you go there looking for it. It's, Miami is a completely different city. I mean, we had the Grove and South Beach and what happened in the late 80s and early 90s, and that scene has come to parts of downtown Miami. I don't even, I don't even know what some of these neighborhoods are called. Um, but before all that, there was this place to see and be seen if you could get in. Yeah, yeah. Any, any ballpark when you were doing all your research, is, is there any ballpark as to how much money ultimately moved through Miami in the 80s that uh, was questionable or illicit? I know there's always that story about how much money was at the Federal Reserve uh, location out there in Doral. But can, can you sort of just provide some context in terms of the what, I what wish we're talking I could about money-wise? So, you know, Alfred and Billy wrote the intro to the book, the, the guys who did the documentary, Cocaine Cowboys. And there's that famous scene with Ed W. Cannon, uh, the Miami Herald, sitting uh, with the skyline behind her. And the skyline mm-hmm. has since kind of doubled or tripled. But And she's saying, like, you know, if you go back and you would truly to contact trace all of these mortgages under these properties, yes, it would, it would reverb back to cocaine money, ultimately. I mean, that was the fuel that, you know, fuel built Pittsburgh, Oil built much of the Arab Middle East, and, and cocaine built Miami's economy. It was laundered through various other things, and it still happens today. I mean, we had the Panama Papers. You have these mundane stories of cousins of Nicaraguan strongmen or something holding all these empty properties in, in Normandyville. I don't, I'm, I don't know how it works, but it's, it's very hard to detect. You know, Nelson Aguilar, who was the cocaine kingpin yep. who, who dealt to the Miami Dolphins in the 1980s, he said, do you know how much stink there would be in this city if the biggest kingpins opted to talk uh, as they were serving time? I mean, the football team would go down. The cruise companies would go down. It's very plausible that a lot of this money is once or twice removed from cocaine money because it was so hot. It was, it was so much cash coming through the system. It so desperately needed to be laundered. But, yeah, uh, you know, people were buying horses. They were buying properties. They were buying cars. Uh, it was a bizarre time in that there was hyperinflation and stagflation, but Miami had a kind of a an all-cash boom going on for, for anything, that any store of money. I mean, even Willie and Sal, the cocaine, the, the biggest cocaine kingpins in Miami history, the, the kings of the mutiny, if you will, they were buying the, the – they were banking the semen of prized bulls, like anything wow. you could put your money into. On top of horses and Ocala, I mean, they were buying bull semen. Frozen bull semen futures. I mean, it was just crazy. Everybody's uncle was in cocaine in the 1980s. For all I knew, the various friends that I had, parents I would never see. You know, that was that was our normal back then. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, now you, you, you went ahead and uh, you actually sat down with quite a few people. And, and by the way, this book is nonfiction. So anybody who, you know, the stuff that Robin's saying, if it sounds like it's professional. No, no, no. All of this is documented. Nonfiction book. Robin, you, you actually sat down with a lot of the guys. They, they served their time. They got jammed up by the feds. Chances are they probably hid money, made investments, whatever the case may be. And now they want credit or at least to be recognized for what they were doing back in the day. Would, would that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, and the irony being that if you look at life imitating art <clears throat> and vice versa, uh, Scarface, the production of the movie in 1982, was effectively was kicked out of town because the Cuban community looked at it as an affront, right? And mm -hmm. they're like, no, like we need this like a bullet to the head after the murder rate and everything else happened, and you're caricaturing Cubans as all gangsters, and you know you're getting an Italian American actor to play a Cuban, and they kind of laughed it out of town, and most of it indeed was shot in Southern California. But what's yeah, funny yeah. is as as the decades go on and they get out of prison and Scarface has been re-released 25 times and it's quoted in SportsCenter and it, it helped influence Breaking Bad. I mean, you name it. It's just a pop culture totem. A lot of yep. these guys come out of hiding and they're like, you, you know, Tony Montana was based on me. If I gave you a nickel for every doper, former doper who claimed it was based on him. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, you know, it's it's hilarious to be in Coral Way or to be in Normandy Village and to meet with a retired doper wearing tube socks, you know, talking about his glory days. Uh, we're 40 <laughs> years removed from that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Along the way, Robin, uh, did, you, did you ever find yourself in situations where you were maybe, I don't know, you know, you're talking about some uh, some pretty uh, interesting individuals. Did, were you ever concerned or scared for your safety or anything like that? Or? Or all these people sort of, you know, well past that, and they were sort of, you know, leaning back and pontificating about how life used to be? No, I was, because some people insisted on meeting me. I mean, this is, you know, I would get the GPS unit with the rental car. I would tell my brother, you know, I have a BlackBerry, but I'm, I'm going to go here. I'll be off of Chrome Avenue. One wanted to yeah. meet me at a cockfight in the Everglades. I mean, it got hairy <laughs> and funky, but I figure at some point, at some point, if you tell people out there, if you tell enough people that you're reporting this, I figure the downside of offing me would uh, would have far outweighed the upside. But you never know if people are, are coked out when they're talking to you. Yeah, and and then when we, we, when you go about reporting out one of these, uh, uh, you know, a, a subject such as this, uh, are there a lot of government records available? Can you get your hands on stuff, or is it still too uh, too uh, too recent? Or can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, in terms of uh, you know, doing background searches. Now, when you meet somebody, everybody Googles each other. Now, you know, when, when you were looking up these people, could you just Google it? Or what did you do in terms of the, you know, the, the attribution and running down the facts? No, some of this stuff was really tedious. I mean, you know, the Miami News, the old Miami News that was absorbed by the Miami Herald in the late 80s, those archives, uh, for, for a flashing moment, Google had digitized a bunch of it and you could look up stuff. But, okay. you know, this was it was, was soul-crushing work to go to the Flagler Street Library and just use the card catalog system and interpolation of words to find, uh, you know, plausible dates and names and events on the, on the what is that thing called, the, the microfiche machine. It's really, you know, a lot of homeless guys in there. It's understaffed. Uh, and, and you just have to, you just have to look and collect. And there's the Florida room at the, you know, Historical Society and, there are some people, and if they last long enough, they can help you. But the records were, were very hard to get. The, the Metro Dade police and Miami police were not very helpful. Um, you just had to look for it wherever you could. There were some people who did, God bless them, hang on 
to original records for decades and decades, and they passed them on to me. And I had to do my best to fill in the blanks with, with you know, like Donald Rumsfeld said, you go to war with the army you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, Robin, let's go ahead and take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, I want to get into the real estate side of, uh, you know, maybe what you found along the way in doing your research and putting together this book, and then um, talk a little bit about sort of going forward. So we'll be right back. Challenging times for real estate call for experts that help you to navigate the new normal in the process of buying or selling property in South Florida. At CBR Realty, we listen carefully and advise based on stats, local knowledge, and experience. For more information, call us at 305-865-5859 or visit our website, cbrrealty.com. Welcome back to the Count of Vultures podcast. This is Peter Zalewski. I'm having a conversation with Robin Farzad. He's the author of Hotel Scarface. It's a great read. It's nonfiction, and it details sort of how cocaine uh, came to be Miami's uh, drug of choice and, and a great revenue generator for uh, many individuals who ended up turning, uh, putting some of that money into real estate. Robin, um, did, when you were doing your research, did you ever uh, come across any statistic or number in terms of uh, real estate transactions in South Florida uh, that may, it might have been uh, tied to cocaine or at least illicit funds or anything like that? Did to, um, you, you got any number off the top of your head maybe? Yeah, there was an FIU statistic that said that one-third of the city's economy 40 years ago was narcotics-based. One third of effectively, wow. if you take the gross gross national product of uh, of uh, Miami, uh, of mm-hmm. uh, Miami metro Dade area, and it stands to reason that, that was probably understated, right? Yeah. Because how do you, you know, if if a person is paid with this like an all cash transaction, they turn around and pay a servant or a person off the books, and a lot of it is black market, and a, a pizza place is a front for it. Um, this is this is what the IRS and the feds tried their best to track. So. I would say it would probably be closer to 40%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, which seems uh, feasible. So for, for anybody who doesn't know, and Robin, this is in my words, and you correct me if I'm wrong. Generally speaking, um, when somebody were to go buy real estate in, in Florida, generally speaking, what happens is you're probably going to get financing. And if you get financing as a borrower, the bank is going to figure out who you are. They want to know where you got your money from. They want to make sure it's clean. So in effect, the federal government deputizes lenders, and they're the ones who need to identify and highlight to the feds if somebody seems a little bit suspicious. So the way you circumvent that is you simply pay cash. You don't have to pay for financing, and uh, 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 and you you get to bypass the lender, and now it's pretty much a clear shot immediately to the the goal line, which is ultimately buying real estate with illicit funds. Does, Does that sound fair? Uh, from everything you know that's and everything fair. Uh, that's fair that's fair and very direct but as we know cash is really tedious you have to launder it you have to physically launder it too it would get dirty right i mean it would be wrapped up in rubber bands uh, some of these dopers had it in their in their pantyhose when they were going between bolivia and miami international you got to get past security and whatnot but the banks themselves were for hire a lot of you know you look at ray corona and, and uh his bank and he was a member of the he's a big member of the mutiny uh, these were coin-operated banks that, at a time when you know they were paying, not they were paying these savings and loans, they were paying people like 14% on their certificates of deposits and savings account. Uh, dopers would pay them 14 or 20 percent of a of a vig to kind of clean the money. To I'll, mm-hmm. I'll I'll bring the cash through the back door and you make legitimate business loans to me, and that was worth it to them because the velocity of the money was so much that sure I'll 
I'll, can you imagine going to an ATM and just saying, I'll take out $100? Sure, you could keep 20 Yeah, right. Exactly. Have you seen Ozark, uh, the show on Netflix about the um, uh, about the I tried I tried watching the first two episodes of it and I turned to something else. It's definitely something I want to do. I love Jason Bateman. So, so there, there's a great um, explanation of, of what the term laundering money means, where he walks people through it. But given the fact that um, uh, we don't have him, we have somebody better. We have Robin. Robin, can you can you give people a general, real simple because uh, idea? What, what does it mean to launder money? And again, our crowd is all over, so maybe they've heard this term, but they can't really understand what it means. Can can can, can you kind of summarize it? And anybody who still wants to get more information, go look up uh, Ozark on Netflix. And there, there's a great scene where where they walk you through it uh, piecemeal in terms of uh, you know step by step how to kind of uh, uh, launder cash. So. Could, could you give us your best shot, Robin, at explaining money laundering? Yeah, here's a here's a problem with with modern money laundering. You make a deposit of about ten thousand dollars in a bank, and it flags. You know, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC system sees that you keep making these things. It they are able to come in and investigate and say, where are you getting this source of money? Uh, with something as big as cocaine, and you're making millions and millions of dollars a month. It's very unwieldy for you to go out there and deposit in a bank. Of course, where there's smoke, there's fire. They're going to come out. They're going to come out of you. So you mm-hmm. need something that's capital intensive. You need a front for that business. And in a very small sense, a pizza place would be great. Suppose you make decent pizza and you offer it for a buck a slice, and you have lines out the door, and you you write up a bunch of receipts for deliveries and this. There's only so much you could launder. It's not like you could you could claim that I sold you know. $2 million of pizza a week. You need a large-scale industrial way to launder something. So with the, the Willie and Sal, the speedboating franchise, they made, you know, a KS&W was a speedboating business, fiberglass halls, manufacturing, all this stuff. When you're talking about multi-million dollar units and the racing business, it's very costly. It's very useful to them because it's a great front. It's a great legitimate front. Um, you know, speedboats, yeah, you're going to be bringing in millions and millions of dollars of, of revenue. But on top of that, you have, uh, you buy real estate through cousins, you you rent it out, you bring dirty cash to corrupt banks and have them make you loans for legitimate purposes or have them make your cousin a loan. And on top of that, you keep cash stacked behind walls. But cash itself is a problem. Cash is unwieldy. Um, cash mm-hmm. draws attention. So you need something kind of industrial in its ability. If you saw Better Call Saul, they had, uh, you know, Los Pollos Hermanos, right? Yeah. And that that was a front for them to get cash, you know, in and out of the place. And, and the feds, if they see this place makes millions of dollars a month, of course, it's expected. It's a popular restaurant. So be it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, um, it's funny you mentioned Breaking Bad. That's another example. Anybody wants to get a sense of somebody laundering how it works. I mean, you just laid it out clearly. Uh, uh, about that. So, so I was saying earlier, if somebody, if I'm, somebody goes to buy real estate and they get financing, the bank is going to basically uh, look into that person's background. Now, if you go the cash route, uh, there's really no one there to look in your background. So what do you do? You go via wire. And you would think the logic would be if somebody's buying real estate and you have somebody with a real estate license, just like the banker, have to tell the feds if something seems suspect. You would think maybe somebody in the real estate industry would have to tell the feds, but for the most part, they don't. The realtors aren't. This was a see no evil, that. hear no evil thing. And then you include a place like Panama, which was a narco republic, right? Uh-huh. And 
the, the president of Panama by 1990, he was working directly with the biggest cocaine dealers in North American history beforehand. And he had plausible deniability after Noriega, but he, Panama itself is like a big giant front, like anything you want money. They can help you. Their their banks are unscrupulous. They can uh, accept cash. They can legitimize it through offshore accounts. And and this stuff has been happening left and right for years. I mean, you saw this recent report with what is it? The uh, money in Swiss banks or money that's been laundered through the banking system? How many trillions yep. of dollars? The headline just came out a few weeks ago. I mean, yeah, money money wants the money, right? That's that's always been the case, even going back well before the time of the bootleggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, uh, the, the feds took some stand, uh, took a stand this particular real estate cycle, Robin, in that um, in April, no, let, let's say first quarter of 2016, and our real estate cycle began in 11 down here. So people were coming in, they were putting down 50% deposits along the way, all this cash was moving in, they were saying they want to buy a unit, developers are charging top dollar for it. So the feds let them do all that. Everybody put down their cash. It takes three years to build a tower. Right when the tower started coming online, the feds announced a rule that in Manhattan as well as Miami-Dade County, the only two places in the country, anybody paying, buying real estate who, who are spending a million dollars or more, uh, the title company or the law firm has to figure out who the ultimate end user was in order to identify possible money launderers. You, you, Robin, you know about that. Yeah, but there's going to be a workaround. You know it's a cat and mouse game. It's constantly going to morph because the money itself, is going to find a solution. There are going to be people who find convenient ways of deferring or avoiding tax or avoiding detection. And that's, that's as old as, as Miami and Panama and Switzerland and Liechtenstein. I mean, this has been going on forever. Yeah, forever. And, and, and as part of that, that million dollar requirement, there's been a bunch of busts. A lot of these condos that have come online, people have gone to close. Uh, there's been a bunch of indictments and people pleading guilty to it. So it has worked. But uh, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Robin, I was, before the pandemic, I was doing walking tours. I see people, uh, uh, we walk around, and, you know, I look at condos and stuff like that. So I was giving a presentation, and I had a crowd of about eight to ten people or so, and, and I talked about the million-dollar cutoff. If you spend a million dollars or more with, uh, and you don't have financing, then, you know, the, the title company has to figure out who the ultimate user is. And two guys uh, corrected me, and they said, no, it's three hundred grand." And I said, 300000 I said, I said, are you sure? How do you know? They said, we work for the um, uh, um, uh, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. So I had, the, I had two regulators on my tour because they wanted to know what was going on with the condo market. They couldn't understand why the prices were running the way they were running because the, you know, the median income in South Florida isn't necessarily that good. And how are people spending all this type of money? Hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I mean, looking at the condo canyons of uh, – of North Miami Beach, of Hollywood, of Little Moscow now, which they call it. These are yep. filled with all the risks of climate change and sea level rise and everything, very attractive places for people who come from economies where they're facing the government expropriation or, or, or creeping expropriation or hyperinflation or, or other things where they don't even care if they lose 20% on, on their uh, cost basis over a couple of years. It's better to get return of capital than return on capital. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, and, and Robin, to give you an idea, price-wise, um, uh, uh, this cycle, new construction, a lot of it was starting at uh, 1,500 to 2,000 a foot. You had one project pushing $6,000 a foot, and I would venture to guess that's expensive of anything you'd find in Manhattan. And Manhattan is now disrupted. I mean, it ebbs and flows. I have this article from 1982 that shows the horrible condo crash 
in South Florida. You and I were talking offline about the commercial property crash. Does anybody remember the savings and loan crisis in Florida, the Centrust building? I mean, they went in and took out David Paul. They found his gold-plated toilet bowl, his, his bulletproof shower door. <laughs> I mean, this is practically the skyline of Florida. The Mutiny Hotel itself was a victim of the savings and loan crisis. There were articles in Fortune and Newsweek in the late 80s that said, this notorious drug den, is it worth more to the taxpayer burnt down than uh, resurrected? And it languished yeah. for nine or ten years, and ultimately it was resurrected into something. Um, Robin, for somebody who's listening to this, um, what, what should they think when they see uh, the condos and the real estate prices that we have here in South Florida, uh, but then the median income is, is so low? What, 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 I help them put it in perspective what percentage is real, what percentage is uh, uh, you know, possibly illicit, and, and, and how did the two sort of interact? Did, did you have any kind of take on that? Yeah, I never, you know, and I, I, I covered investments and I covered the markets a whole other side of my life as I worked at, I worked in investment management in Miami um, between mm-hmm. 98 and 2000. And I covered the markets for Business Week. And there should be, just as there is with, with facts, there should be an underlying price to earnings multiple for real estate where it's a reflection of either the replacement value or what you could get in rent. But there is a detached value you get like at a speculative level because how do you factor in the Venezuelans that want to hide their money? How do you factor in uh, Moscow, Moscovites who want their wives to have their children born there? How do you factor in the speculative level? It's kind of like trying to price Tesla against General Motors. It's very, very difficult. But I, I do know that this is a boom-bust place. This happens. You know, that you, you, I, I, I remember you and I were looking at vultures staring at the skyline of downtown Miami when I was writing about yep. you for Business Week. And you're like, I'm sure that this is going to fill up. I'm, and, and next thing we know, we're writing in 2012, 2013, how rents on Brickell are impossibly expensive. Young people are moving into the place, right? And yes, now, yes, yes. barely a decade after that whole skyline was hollowed out, you have people who can't, that Miami is one of the least affordable cities from a rent perspective. And people are always talking about the next bust around the corner. So I never knew kind of how to get my my head around the, the underlying uh, intrinsic P.E. ratio of, of real estate down there. Of course, there are people that will tell you they're not making any more of it. The skyline's only getting more crowded. The city, mm-hmm. even for all of its climate change risk, is uh, more international and cosmopolitan and desired than it's ever been. I mean, look at people moving into parts of, of, of town that used to be, uh, you know, crack corridors, right? As I, as I joke yes. with you, right, the Upper East Side and Midtown and everything. And yep. so – yeah, all that yep. is going to boom and bust as it always has. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, but but yet, um, uh, so again, somebody listening to this might be thinking, "Oh my God, I don't want to go to Miami. It sounds like a dangerous place." It's not, is it, Robin? Is is Miami a dangerous place? Even though we're talking about all this illicit money that's moved through and continues to move through, it's nothing like it was forty years ago. I mean, I'm reading a book right now. I'm fascinated by it. I'm going to have him on the show, "The Year of Dangerous Days" by Nicholas Griffin. Riots, refugees, okay. and cocaine in, my, in Miami of 1980. And I can say Miami of 1980, 1981 was a failed state. You had the highest murder rate in the hemisphere, if not the world. You don't fear that in downtown Miami. You can walk on 79th Street. 79th Street and Biscayne used to be yeah. a punchline when I was in elementary school. Like, oh, your mom works on 79th Street, right? <laughs> uh, the city exactly. Is, the city is completely different. And cocaine is not the violence. It's not the epicenter of violence. It's still there. Meth is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opioid, the, the legal, the borderline legal opioid market. If you go up to Boca Raton and and uh, you know um, 
let's talk about Coral Springs and places like that, all the pill mills up and down South Florida that make infinitely more. A lot of the cocaine dealers that I've covered have since gone into healthcare fraud. It's much more lucrative than, than cocaine dealing ever was, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Robin, I guess the takeaway, if somebody looks at the skyline of Miami, what, what would be your best guesstimate? Uh, one out of our, uh, how many condos do you think uh, might have a little smell of something illicit to it? Gosh, the the entire, the entire, I mean, come on, the entire skyline of it, right? We, have one, <laughs> we covered one thing that they built in Little Moscow, which they called Sunny Isles when I was growing up, specifically built for oligarchs. Right, specifically built to attract that kind of money, and then I'm not even, you know, go back to Aventura and the Pittsburgh families and everything that did it. It's always been a place, a place of, of hot money, if not dirty money, uh, speculative money, money that's that's, um, you know, I don't want to have it in the stock market, or I don't want to be buying single-family homes outside of Atlanta, or, or veteran housing, or government-subsidized housing. I want it to be in this kind of high beta asset class. And that's what Miami has always offered going back to the 1920s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, and I guess, I guess my, uh, one of my final questions, at least uh, pertaining to this, is um, uh, technology. Everybody's doing things digitally now. How, how much more difficult do you think it is um, to launder cash today than it was back in the 80s when, um, when, when the Mutiny Hotel was really at its heyday and, uh, you know, these guys were dumping bottles of Dom into the, uh, you know, the, 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 the hot tub. I mean, is it is it as easy from everything you've heard and you've read, or or have they simply figured a different way, maybe Bitcoin or something, some other alternative? Yeah, I you know I think about that a lot because I you know I comment to people I only take out cash once in a blue moon. It's effectively to go to the barber shop. I don't use cash yeah. for anything else. I literally use my iPhone to pay Apple Pay or these things. Um, and and what are you going to do? Make a credit card transaction to buy a, a bag of Coke? I mean. You know, New York, where I lived in Manhattan, where you had effectively it was a very, you know, the people who were users, it was very businesslike. The doormen were in cahoots with the drug dealers. It wasn't shady. You'd never be in a street corner or buying in a back alley. How is that stuff settled? I always wondered if, you know, if nobody's buying cash or if you don't want to look like you're a dealer, if you don't want to look like you're making deposits, if you don't want to look like you're tripping the wire by taking out too many uh, withdrawals of $500 from the ATM. How is that done today? Are there intermediaries? Are there people, are there intermediary fronts where you could buy a legitimate, legitimate product and put a VIG on it and they will settle in cash with that person? You're right. It's going to become a lot harder. It reminds me of that scene in The Sopranos where part of Tony's gang in New Jersey tries to shake down a Starbucks, right? Which mm-hmm. was near where, maybe near where the, the poultry butchery or satrialities used to be. And they go in there, and the, the worker, like a minimum wage guy, is like, I'm sorry, everything, every penny here is tracked, and uh, we don't really have a lot of cash. They're trying to shake down protection money. You could go look up the scene. And they, they leave in a kind of a forlorn way. It's like, you know, man, it's not like it used to be, kid. <laughs> the mob doesn't pay like it used to. It's very hard. But, yeah, you're going to get into Bitcoin. You're going to get into blockchain. You'll get into uh uh, more, it's always a cat and mouse game with money laundering, and I and I do wonder where it's headed. Now, th- some say this is the golden era of uh, television, simply because of you know the Netflix, the Prime, all that type of stuff. You have a great story here, several stories. Um, maybe people are gonna be able to watch anything. You you in the works? Anything you can talk about? Anything happening? Maybe we we might be able to turn on. Yeah, Netflix I can tell. See, uh, I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Sadly, a couple of things. If you want to get the word out, a year ago the option lapsed. 
Um, okay. Bummer because it was picked up very quickly after the book came out. So if anybody wants to make a run at it, get in touch. I'd love to see some sort of screen treatment of it. And moreover, one thing that, that is very mysterious to me and I get asked all the time is why it was never translated into any uh, Spanish language book for any of these countries. Typically, a Colombia or an Argentina or a Spain would step up and buy the rights. And that's been an ongoing mystery uh, to me. It did, it did really well in the United States. It got incredible press in the UK, albeit with a different cover, but didn't sell well in the UK. And all of these former members of the mutiny get in touch from all parts of, of Latin America and Central America. And they're like, where can I get a Spanish language version? And, and there just isn't one. Wow. That's amazing. That looks like, that sounds like an opportunity missed. I hope, I hope it sees, um, it sees, you know, more life on the screen because there's so many things that I had to leave on the cutting room floor, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, everything is on hold right now. Who knows? Could, could we see a, a part two? I mean, uh, you know, I started this podcast, uh, because I knew there was going to be some uh, quiet times ahead due to the pandemic. Um, what about you? Maybe you can take some of that stuff you've already done the research on and uh, come up with, a, with another book. This thing took the life out of me, and it effectively ended my time as a business writer. I then became a radio host after that. I spent so much of my life on this. I, I gave my heart and soul. It was almost my swan song as a writer. But I think I have another book or two in me. I just – nothing, nothing – that, that inspired me, that kind of made me Captain Ahab-like, like like this book. So, so Robin, um, uh, going forward, any a, anything you're in the in the process of doing, anything that the uh, the listener ought to be aware of? Yeah, you can listen to Full Disclosure, my show. Please subscribe at fulldradio.com on Apple Podcasts. Um, we're going to have Monkey Morales's son, who I've become very close with, on the show. There are other people we've had on Mutiny Molly. Um, uh, uh, George Valdez, the doper who worked, the, 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 the Miami guy for the Medellin cartel who worked at the Federal Reserve Branch in Miami, he was on the show. It was just an incredible story. And I will have Nicholas yeah. Griffin, uh, the author of The Year of Dangerous Days, the Miami book, on um, in a few weeks. And that's full disclosure. Robin, I want to thanks for, uh, thank you for taking the time to um, have this conversation with me. Um, I think the listener is going to absolutely love it, and I'm going to recommend to them. Again, Hotel Scarface, go out there, buy it, or download it from Audible. It's a fantastic read, and it will give you a true depiction of what's really going on um, and really what Miami history was and who the hell knows uh, kind of what's going on right now. But um, that's Robin Farzad. Look up for uh, full disclosure. Check it out. It's fantastic. And uh, turn on NPR or PBS. Chances are you're going to see this guy or you're going to hear this guy. Thanks for tuning in to the Count of Vultures podcast. If you're not yet a subscriber, please go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. you like what we're doing, give us a rating and a comment. And then finally, if you have any comments for us, please feel free to send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Until next time, I'm Peter Zalewski. Thank you. Ciao, ciao.